0: Hello, hello and hello everybody. Welcome back for another episode If Not Now When. Today, oh my goodness, I have such an honor to introduce today's special guest. We have Steve Hoffman here in the show with us, or aka Captain Hoff. Let me tell you a little bit more about Steve steve is the ceo of founder space one of the world's leading startup accelerators with over 50 partners over 22 countries oh my goodness and if you don't know founder space founder space it was founded with a mission to advocate and accelerate entrepreneurs founder space has become one of the top startup accelerators in the world wow and captain Half have trained hundreds of startups and corporate executives in the arts of innovation and providing consulting to many world's largest corporations. Founderspace was ranked number one incubator for overseas startups by Forbes and Entrepreneur Magazine. Huffman is also venture investors, founder of three venture-backed and two bootstrap startups. Last but not least, He has so much more time, of course. He also is the author of several award-winning books, those including Making Elephants Fly. Wow, I would love to know how. Surviving a Stardom, The Five Forces. With that, everybody, oh my God, with all my honor, full of my heart, thank you so much for joining us today and welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Wen. It is fantastic to be here.
0: Amazing. So with that, you know, tell us how's all magic get begin, get started, Captain Hoff.
1: So it got started by accident. So I had done three venture funded startups, two bootstrap startups, and I was taking a break from doing startups when all my friends started to come to me, and they said my nickname. They're like, Captain Hoff, can you help me? How do I raise money? How do I put together a business plan? What what do I do next? So I would go out to coffee with them, I would help them, and then they all had similar questions. So I started to post the answers, my advice, on my blog, which is called Founders Space. And it just started to grow. All, a lot of entrepreneurs started to come there whom I didn't know, asking similar questions, needing the same help, okay. and we launched what we called Founders Space Roundtables. We would get founders together around the table with venture capitalists, angel investors, lawyers, marketing people, and work out their problems. Well, this is going great. And then the founders came to me and said, why don't you open an incubator? Why don't you open a startup accelerator in San Francisco, which is where I was living? And I said, sure. And this was over a decade ago. So we Mm. launched Founderspace in San Francisco And it just went like crazy because we were at just the right place at just the right time. And that was the beginning.
0: Wow, Steve, what a journey. And wow. First of all, you said you get asked so many questions. I'm curious, what is the number one most asked question in the startup space?
1: Ah, So the number one most asked question, which shouldn't be the most asked question, honestly, (laughs) is, can you get me money? I need money. And you know, I every entrepreneur needs money. I mean, if you're an entrepreneur and you don't need money, well, then you've either you're incredibly rich or you've already made it. So when they're mm-hmm. coming to founder space, they are at that point where they are at the early stages of the company. They're getting everything ready to grow, and they need more capital. But I'll tell you, money, if you're having trouble raising money, and a lot of entrepreneurs <laughs> bang their head against a wall trying to get money. It usually has very little to do with not meeting the right people because you, if you have something that's going, money will come people when they most, it's sort of binary. Either a startup is always extremely difficult when things aren't quite working, when they're not quite there, they're almost there, but they're not really there. Once things click into place and they're just taking off, you can go to virtually any Investor in Silicon Valley, and they'll write you a check. There is so much money out there. So if you can prove to them that they're taking that, that you really have figured out something, then the money is there. However, at the a lot of entrepreneurs, they don't they haven't completed their product yet. It's still in development, or they launched it and it didn't quite perform the way they thought it would, and they they really need help. What I'll often do is step in with them and try to figure out. Way, what path they need to take to get their company in a position where it's ready to raise capital.
0: How do you describe that position that is ready to raise money?
1: So a, a startup that's ready to raise money has a few things uh, in place. Number one, most in, some investors, early stage investors, angel investors, they'll just take a bet on you. They'll give you money even though you haven't figured anything out. Um, but you can't count on that. If you really. A want to be positioned to raise capital, especially from smart investors. You need three things, and if you don't have these things, it's going to be really hard. So, number one, first thing I want entrepreneurs to do, I will tell you, is spend eighty percent of your time not building your product, not raising money, not even talking to customers. And you're like, what? What? What am I supposed to do? Well, what you're supposed to do at the very beginning is spend eighty percent of your time on your team. Like who are the most amazing people you can work with? Not who's available, not who do you know right now? It's who do you actually need to execute on this? Because I know a lot of entrepreneurs with brilliant ideas and they go nowhere. Like they, they just never go anywhere because they don't have the right people in place to really build them out. So as the CEO of your startup, I'm gonna tell you, you know, your number one job, number one job is get the right people in place. If you do this, They will do everything else. And then their second question is, how can I get these people to join me when I have no money? (laughs) Like, I just have an idea. And I will tell you, that is the challenge. That's what separates. Like, I'm an investor. I work with hundreds of investors. We want a CEO that can convince people to leave their great job at Microsoft or Google, come work to their, for their startup for no money, like because they believe in that person. Like that's leadership. That means that that company is going to go. If you can attract people on no money, wait till I give you money. Like this thing is going to go on fire. But you have to prove to them. And how do you do it? How do you get somebody to quit an incredible job at Google or, or Facebook or any of these companies and come join your little startup? Well, I'll tell you, most people in the world, they, the most important thing to them is not their paycheck. The most important thing to them is what they do in their life. They want to do something meaningful. They want to create something. And there are plenty of people out there at those big companies who are frustrated. I talk to them every day. They're like, if the right startup just came to me, I would figure out, oh, you know, I would quit that great job and I would join that startup. But so how do you get a a great person to join you? Somebody really high caliber. Well, the easiest time, is at the beginning when you haven't invested a lot, because the more you invest in your company, like you've spent a year, you put in your life savings, and then you try to go out and find the good people and you don't have a lot of money. Well, you're only going to want to give them a little equity and your company's kind of already baked and set by the direction. They're probably not going to join. The best time to get them is when the idea is nascent, when it's just beginning, like it's, you're just figuring out this little idea and They can be part of figuring it out because that's what excites them. Like if you don't have money, you got to make them own it with you. So bring them early, give them a good amount of equity because it's early and then have you guys go on the journey together. It's not your company they're joining. It's your company together that you're creating. That's number one. Number two, everybody thinks I need that idea. I need that perfect idea. Before I start my company, like, oh, I can't start unless I have that epiphany. Well, I'll tell you, very few of us have those epiphanies out of thin air, right? (laughs) Like we just don't, like those ideas just don't come to us or they seem great when they're in our head, but we go out into reality and you find out "Ah, somebody's already doing it or it doesn't quite work the way I thought it would, You you know, all these problems. So when you have this great team together, I often say you don't even need to sell them on an idea. Because if you sell them an idea, then they look at your idea and they go, I don't know. You know, I don't know if that's the idea I want to do. But what you want to find people who share a similar vision with you. And by vision versus idea, I mean a vision is we want to make a big change in the world. And uh, we are going to figure out how to do this together. Like, how can we make this big change? So let's say you look at the fishing industry, which is awful, like they're decimating our oceans, the fishing industry, with their pollution, with, uh, you know, bycatch, with uh, their practices, overfishing, all of these things are terrible. Like you say, I want to make that more sustainable. How do you do that, right? Well, you could have a million ideas of what, how you could improve the fishing industry. But I will tell you, if the fishing industry doesn't buy into it, those ideas are worthless. Like they might actually work, but they have their own priorities, their own business. So if you're going to actually transform that industry, what you need to do is that industry will never transform from the inside. The insiders just keep doing what they're doing, even though they're destroying themselves and, and our future for fishing. What you need to do is you need to take your team, this amazing team that shares that vision with you, not a specific idea, go engage the fishing industry. And then the people in that industry and then really listen to them. Really find out where their headaches are. Really find out the problems you can solve. And in that process, figure out what how you can make them into the type of business that I'm sure that the world needs, like more sustainable fishing that would benefit them and benefit their whole industry. But you cannot do that just by thinking of this idea. You have to go into the real world. And I call this process... This is the discovery process. This is the next thing you do in in launching a startup. You don't, if you just have one idea, a lot of times you'll lock into that idea and you'll want to sell it to everybody, prove that it works. That's a mistake. If you say, look, I have, 50 ideas, and none of them may be right or entirely right, but I'm going to go into this industry and I'm going to try them out. We're going to experiment. I'm going to meet the people. I'm going to see how they react. I'm going to get their feedback. I'm going to find out what their problems are, what their headaches are, what they, what their priorities are, and I'm going to find that intersection. That is where you create value. That is where you get something that really works. So that process is very different than how most startups start and how, why mm-hmm. most startups fail. So that's why I wrote the book, Surviving a Startup, because I've just seen this hundreds of times working with entrepreneurs. The third thing you need to do when launching a business is what I call ex- dis- discovering extreme demand. So if you build a linear business, and a lot of people do, that grows slowly because there's a little demand or a niche business that's sort of constrained because it's uh, there's only a niche market, you, no venture capitalist is going to want to fund you. So what you venture capitalists are looking for is exponential growth, like just shoots off the charts. How do you find that? Well, you find that by becoming a demand hunter. And that's where being flexible is great. Like I have all these ideas. I have this vision of how I'm going to change the industry. I'm going to go into it and I'm going to start talking to people and figuring out where when I present them with something. That they're not like, oh, that's nice to have. That's that's great. Like if you go to hundred people and you and you show them and they go, oh, that's that's nice, that's good, you have nothing. Like you have absolutely nothing. Like a lot of entrepreneurs say, you know, I went out to all these people and they said, you know, it's great, come back when you build it. And they'll never, I'll tell you, they'll never buy it. Why won't they buy it? Because there's no extreme demand there. Here's what extreme demand looks like. You go to a potential customer and you're talking about what you do, and then their eyes go out. They go, oh my God, give that to me. Can I have that tomorrow? How can I get on board? What can I do? I really need that. You you've got to give it to me. If you get that reaction from your customers, all of a sudden, if there are enough customers like it, so it's a big market, a billion-dollar market, boom. You build that, they will come. Like that, you build something else where they're like, oh, that's nice. They'll they'll never bother. Like they'll just, they just want you to go away, is the bottom line. So you do those three things, and you're in a really good position to start your company.
0: Wow, Captain Hoff. Of course, you're going know, to wow this is in the first five minutes. Wow, incredibly set. I love what you said about always. Number one, start with a vision. Make sure you get the right people on the bus. And then from that place, talking to your customer, fall in love with your customer, not your product itself. Discover what exactly their pain point, and then from there, Find that this extreme demand, find a place, every uh, area that he or she will say, yes, how can I pay you right now? And I love that three point you said, which is fantastic start for any entrepreneurs on their own journey. So thank you for such a gift. And, you know, Captain Half, I'm curious, you know, you speak with such a passion and such an insight. How do you gain all that? Do you always know what you want to do in this planet?
1: You know when? I don't. And I'm always changing my mind. I'm just normal, like everybody else, human being, passionate human being. But I make a lot of mistakes along the way. I've done a lot of things. Like I like to say, I've had more careers than cats have had lives. Really, so, more than nine. Tell I've done more. You know, I've been an electrical computer engineer. I've been a game designer. I've been a Hollywood television executive. I've mm. been an animator. I've been a voice actor. I rewrote manga magazines. Wow. You know, I'm a venture capitalist now. I've founded three different startups, being a startup CEO mm. and entrepreneur. The list goes on. So I
0: <laughs> So how did I, you know what is a right next step along the journey of there exploration?
1: There's never a right next step. There are there are many possibilities at any juncture. Like Mm -hmm. you could do many things. And, you Mm -hmm. know, most of us, if we're passionate, we could fall in love with many things. Like I could be working with wild animals and be totally passionate about, you know, saving these Mm -hmm. animals. I could be, you know, an artist painting. And I'm sure I would be totally, you know, at one point in my life, I wanted to be an artist. My mom was an artist. So I thought I would be a painter. You know, I wanted to be a filmmaker and I was totally passionate. But life is a if you are open to possibilities if you are open to ideas there's always something amazing you, you can do on this planet and and i feel lucky enough to have tried many of them <laughs> like to done you know i've designed literally over a dozen games and i've produced even more than that like both on okay. mobile pc's video games all different mm-hmm. types of games and um i've been i've done all these different careers and for me um, every career can be really rewarding. Uh, if you're working with the right people, if you're working Mm -hmm. on a project you're passionate about, Mm -hmm. uh, though, though, that's what matters to me, not the specifics
0: with that, you know, Captain Hoff, you obviously have, you know, such a rich life. What made you to pivot from one to another? What is your thought process along your journey and help you become who you are today?
1: Well, let me tell you. So, you know, I was in engineering, Uh, and I got into engineering because I loved games. I'd make like, as a kid, I made like tons of board games, like literally hundreds of board games. I programmed my own computer games and I made movies like a lot of different movies. So I was just very creative as a kid doing all this. And then computers come along and my father, who's an, he was literally an MIT rocket scientist. (laughs) Like he said, son, computers are going to change the world study computers so i was like dad's smart you know i should study computers and i like programming games so i went into it but i found out you know i didn't electrical computer engineering wasn't my thing like i liked the creative side of making mm-hmm. games i didn't really want to sit there uh you know building electronic gadgets and stuff like that that wasn't my interest so mm-hmm. i graduated Near the top of my class, at all these job offers, and I decided, no, I'm going to apply to film schools. I'm going to follow up on that dream. So I literally got into one of the top schools, USC Film and Television, got my master's degree there, went out into Hollywood, and you know, you get a degree in film, you think it's really important, but it it doesn't get you into the industry. <laughs> like Hollywood is Hollywood. Like you know, you you don't get into the industry because you have a degree in film. So I literally reached out and contacted 150 of the top executives in Hollywood. Like, I found a way into all those doors, got a letter on their desk. You know, that was like what I was determined to do. Like, I was going to do this. You know, out of all those 150, only three responded. Three! And the, the first response that came to me uh, mm-hmm. was uh, from none other than the producer of Star Wars Empire Strikes Back. Wow. Yeah. He called me up and he was like, you know what? I loved your letter. And I just want to talk to you. I don't have any job for you. And I was like, oh, no job. (laughs) I just want to chat. So we chatted for like Mm -hmm. an hour. And Mm -hmm. that was it. Like there was nothing. And uh, the second uh, opportunity I got was from none other than Disney. The head of Disney's uh, film production calls me in for an interview. So I'm like, wow, I got it made. I'm getting into Disney. So I go there right out of school. I'm talking to her. Interview's going great. And then she asks me a trick question. She asked me, and you probably won't even believe she asked me this question. She asked me, what films do you like? And me, I had just graduated film school with a master's degree. I had been watching all these phenomenal films from directors around the world, from Asia and Europe and obscure art films and experimental films. And so, you know, classic films. And I start rattling off all these names, you know, of directors I just really admire. And then she looks at me and she said, you didn't name any Disney movies. <laughs> and I was like. Ouch. Oh. I was like, oh, I, you know, I was like, I was just telling you the truth. Like, these are the directors I admired. They're like, they're geniuses. Um, and then, and she goes, do you watch Disney movies? I go, oh yeah, when I was a kid, I loved them. Her face just dropped. And literally, she couldn't wait to get me out of her office. <laughs> so I, she just got me out of the office. She didn't want a kid uh, out of film school who, who, you know, was you know, wasn't into Disney films. So I was, mm-hmm. I lost that job. I only had one shot left. And I get called in by this very famous uh, Hollywood uh, television and movie producer called Chuck Freeze. He had this big office on Hollywood Boulevard right across from the Man Chinese Theater with his name on the roof. And I get invited into his office, which is literally huge, with Emmys on the wall and all this stuff and a big desk, just like you would see in the the films, Mm -hmm. and He's sitting, he's this big guy, and he looks like this character. And If you've never seen the film Barton Fink by the Coen brothers, watch it. This is him. He is the producer. He looks just like that guy. And he's like, Hoffman, so you want a job? And I'm like, yeah, I want to write for you. I want to direct. Hire me. And he goes, Ah, I don't know. We don't have that. But I'll see what I can do. So I get hired as a reader. And a reader is the lowliest job at one of these companies where you're just like reading scripts, you know, and what literally what you're doing is filtering out all the bad scripts. So you read scripts, you write a synopsis, and then you recommend whether the producer in the company should read the script or not. Mm-hmm. And so I started doing this and I was doing it for a couple weeks and I was like, OK, I could do this forever. But it's not, first of all, it's not very exciting. I'm not writing. I'm not directing. I am just reading scripts and filtering out the bad ones. And I looked around and the other readers, many of them had been there for years doing this Mm -hmm. job. I was like, I don't want to stay here for years. So what I did was I went back to Chuck and I was like, Chuck, I can do more. I can do more. You know, give me a chance. Give me a shot. And he was like, Hoffman, I just hired you a couple of weeks ago. What are you? What are you coming to me for asking for more? Go away. So I went away. But he listened and he gave me a chance to work with one of the producers in the company doing research on a project. Well, I did a really good job. The producer's really happy. And so what did I do a few weeks later? I went back to his office. I was like, contacted him and I was like, Chuck, give me a shot. Give me a chance. And he goes, Offman, I just gave you the research job. Aren't you ever <laughs> happy? <laughs> So I I was doing the research job. I was still doing the reading job. I come into my office one day and the head of uh, the head of the director of development, uh, she's behind the desk. She usually just hands me my script and I go away back home to read it. She looks at me and she her eyes are shooting daggers. She is so mad and she's looking right at me like, why is she mad at me? And um, she stands up very rigid and says, you got me fired and storms out of the office. I'm like, what is she talking about? Um, and then I get called into Chuck's office and I go into Chuck and I'm kind of shaken up because I just, my boss, you know, this weird thing just happened. And mm. I sit down and, and Chuck and I go, Chuck, what's going on? And he looks at me and goes, Hoffman, you're a new TV development executive. <laughs> so, Literally, have you if you've seen the movie Swimming with Sharks? It's a great film about Hollywood. It's just like this. Like it's like right out of the movie. So, I was literally um promoted to TV development executive, not in the best way. I didn't even want that job. I wanted to be a writer director, but I was oh. in that job and it was It was crazy. Um, I was like, didn't know what to do. Like, I didn't know anything about Holly, you know, her job. I was literally standing in her office. And what happened was I ended up figuring out the job on the job. So on the job, as, you know, as I was working, I basically faked my way through it. Like, I didn't know anything (laughs) about the job. You know, the phone would ring. I'm sitting behind her desk. The phone would ring. and, And I didn't know if I should pick it up. I picked it up. And it's some Hollywood agent going, blah, 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 blah. blah. We want to send you this. I was like, okay, send it to everybody who called. And uh, the other readers would come in and they look at me and like, what are you doing behind Karen's desk? Why are you there? And I was like, well, I guess I'm the new, (laughs) I'm the new head of development. And when Chuck called me into his office, he would ask me questions that I knew not, not, did not know the answer to. So he would like have the script and they would have to cast a certain person in the role if this project like mm. he would go he would go hoffman what actress do we need in this part which which actress do you recommend and me i had just been watching classic movies for the past three years all these art films i didn't know the hollywood actors and actresses i didn't even watch television at the time and and literally he's asking me to to fill this role i didn't know what to say so i said chuck Let me think about it. (laughs) That's all I could say. And I went back to my office and you know what I did? The first thing I did is I called my friend. He's my brother's best friend. He was literally has a photographic memory and he loves everything Hollywood. And literally he knows every A-list actor, B-list actor, C-list actor, D-list actor, every actor in Hollywood. I called him up. I described the part. I, he, he would, he would tell me. Oh, this person would be perfect uh, for a uh, 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 perfect for for the role. The next day, I go back into Chuck. He's like, Hoffman, have you thought about it? Have you thought about who we should cast? And I go, Well, Chuck, I actually did. This person would be my first choice. This would be my second choice, and this would be my third choice. He looks at me. Hoffman, you're brilliant. <laughs> So, so literally I had the job and to answer your question in a very long winded way, I stayed at this job a year and during that year, I was like, all I'm doing is kind of being the executive picking projects, but I'm not writing, I'm not directing. I want to create something. Mm. And one of the producers at that company, his cousin was the founder of this game company, Sega, which had just surpassed Nintendo to become the number one video game company in the world at that time. And and they were in Japan. And I thought, well, games are going to be bigger than, and I love games from my childhood, are going to be bigger than movies. And I met him and I said, send me to Japan. And he goes, okay, we want somebody from Hollywood in Japan. So he sent me off to their headquarters in Japan, started developing designing games and that so you asked me why all these choices i i made not Mm -hmm. really for the money not really thinking about like long-term career but like thinking about me as a person what i wanted to do creatively what i wanted to express and then i would make that choice and it was a chance you know i was in a great position like chuck literally in that company was really nice to me and he's like hoffman ah why are you leaving i can't believe it you got this great job. <laughs> and, I, and he goes, how am I going to replace you? And you know what I did with Chuck? I said, Chuck, uh, you know, he's like, where am I going to find another Hoffman? <laughs> I go, Chuck, you can find another Hoffman, my brother. He's, he's, you know, just working at a record store in a low-paying job. <laughs> <was> like, no. <laughs> he has like no career at all. Do you want to hire him? And he goes, he's a Hoffman. We'll hire him. <laughs> So he hired Wow. He liked me enough to hire my brother, like just because he was my brother. And then I was off to Japan.
0: Wow. First of all, like it's literally a movie by itself, which I really needed to watch the swimming with a shark this weekend. And I want to comment a couple of things. Number one, like you are such an entrepreneur. In the beginning, with 150 letters, you get one out of 150. And talking about Percivalian, talking about grit, talking about not giving up, talking about never a door open for you. you just crack open a little moment of break. And yeah, that's all you need.
1: All you need is one out of 150. If you had, you know, 140 out of 150, it would be harder because you'd have to choose which Fair of point. these 140 job offers do I take? When you only have one, you just take it.
0: I love that. And I also wanted to mention that you are such, um, you're so bold. Like two weeks in a job, you ask for a promotion, another two weeks, another like almost like the, you are just so not afraid to ask and you know what you want and you know what you deserve. And I think that is so incredible and in- inspiring. And then after two, a year or two, you want such a fancy job and fancy, you know, title and all. But you decide one more time, follow your heart, follow your passion, follow your light to do something more creative. And that takes a lot of courage too. Sometimes not just saying yes to something, but saying no to another, also difficult too. If you say yes
1: to something, you always have to say no to something else. That is life. So like these choices are hard. Like I was in that Japanese game company. You know, I did a year for my first job and then I jumped to the Japanese game company. I was working there, incredible experience, really amazing. But after a year... I felt like, you know, games are huge. The potential is enormous. I want to start my own game company. Why am I working mm. for this big company? Like, I mm. could do this on my own. So I literally quit in a year, moved back home to America and San Francisco. And with my, what money I had saved up, launched my first company. And that's how I got into wow. being an entrepreneur.
0: How does, okay, first of all, wow. Secondly, were you ever afraid? Were you ever scared? Were it just like, a you know what? I'm doing all this on my own. I have no idea how, but I'm going to figure it out along the way. Like, how do you always just know what, you, what well, is Well, I have
1: these competing forces, you know, because human beings are complex. Mm-hmm. So on my side that's fearful and anxious, you know, oh, I'm spending all my money. I'm leaving this great job. I'm like, what am I doing? Like, this, I should just stick with it. You know, and things will probably be great and they would be great. You know, that's mm-hmm. one possible path I was... Either of those, I would have probably done fine. Um, Who knows what I would be now if I had taken those other paths. And then on the other hand, um, I have that adventurous side, which says, don't worry about it. Like, just do it. Like, you want to do it, Mm -hmm. do it, and you'll figure something will happen. So um, I tend to, uh, usually the adventurous side ends up winning out, although it does cause me a lot of stress. So like when I started my company, Mm-hmm. trying to get out my first game. You know, now I had to go back to coding, which I hadn't done for a while. And I was never like a coding superstar because I didn't care about it that much. Mm-hmm. So I was coded the game myself. I was drawing the artwork. It was called Gazillionaire, was our first game, Gazillionaire. And literally, you know, uh, the, ironically, the game does what I do today. In the game, I thought, I want to make a game. I don't want to make a violent shooting game. I don't want to make mm-hmm. a game that's, you know, I want to make a game that contributes to society in a really good way. Mm. So I wanted to make a game that was as fun to play, because I do like those shooting games, as all the the shooting games, as fun to play as one of those. Mm -hmm. But it teaches you how to be an entrepreneur. And it teaches you how to become a gazillionaire. So I wrote this game, like literally myself funded it, had some artists and sound people working together. We created this really amazing world. And you know we don't know what's gonna happen with this game. But it's the early days of the internet, so we put it out there, and I'm literally, there wasn't like e-commerce, so people had to like send us cash in the mail to buy it. And the first sale comes from none other, you won't even believe this, the first sale comes from Lord Geck. Now, who is Lord Geck? He some geek out there in the world who downloaded our game from a, a bulletin board at the servers. And, and, and you know, one of the one of the only people sent me $15. I found out he's in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area. I invited him over for dinner. We became friends, me and Lord Geck, and he was my first customer. And but what happened was um the people at the largest PC uh, game company in the world at the time, called Spectrum Holobyte Microprose their testers, all their geeks, just like their Lord Gex, were testing games. They downloaded it from the internet. They got hooked on it. They love fell in love with that game. And this largest PC game publisher in the world contacts me like out of the blue and says, we want to put this in every store. We want to put this everywhere. You know, I was like, okay. And then Gazillionaire just took off. And then my next two games just took off. And, you know, ironically, gazillion this was like decades ago that I did Gazillionaire. It's still selling today. It's on Steam, you know, that Steam, the game service, people love it. So it's like one of these classic games. It's just doing your own thing, being creative. is Mm -hmm. so rewarding. Like it's not the money. It's Mm -hmm. like that you actually just go out there in the world and bring to life these mm-hmm. things that you want to see there.
0: I love that, Steve. You are so passionate about your vision and you're such an innovator, such a leader to bring all the talents in together and create that vision. And of course, you know, the hit, the rest is a history. And I'm curious, you know, I don't want to say that entrepreneurship just like, you know, movie, it's all rainbow and sunshine. I'm sure there's a raining day. I'm curious for you, your personal experience, what is hardesting hardest thing that you yourself have to do, do or overcome in that process?
1: Oh, there are so many hard things. So, you know, I uh, seem very confident now. I seem very uh, capable. But even despite all this, I was a very shy guy. Like, people don't believe it today because I changed myself. Like, I literally became much less shy. But all the way through college, even that first job I talked to you about, you know, mm-hmm. when the producer of of star wars called me up i probably could have asked him for a you know pushed on him to get a job but i didn't do this and when i would go into chuck i told you the story about going into chuck the big tv producer and asking for a promotion it was heart-wrenching like it was like really like i had to really push myself to do it, it wasn't natural i'm not one of these people who just like can go and say anything now i am but I wasn't back then. <laughs> so, but by doing what I found is by doing these things over and over that are challenging for you, that you mm-hmm. think you can't do, they mm-hmm. become easier and easier and easier. Like it becomes much easier. So now I could go in like without any worry and ask for a promotion. In those days when I did it, it was actually really forcing myself to do it, mm-hmm. like really pushing myself. And when I launched my first venture company, venture funded company, which mm-hmm. came after my gazillionaire days, doing the gazillionaire product. Um, I uh it was called Spider Dance, actually got together with friends from film school. It was tough. Like I didn't know how to raise venture capital. They didn't have really any startup incubators or accelerators. It was the early days of the whole mm-hmm. ecosystem. I I didn't know I wasn't a salesperson, I was a creative person. So
0: mm-hmm.
1: literally, um, it was a huge challenge for us. Like we, I and my partners banged our head against the wall for an entire year trying to raise money. And mm-hmm. so, so, so hard. And I have a long story about that. I don't know if there's time for it here, but it was a really, uh, it was a really arduous journey, but it taught me so much.
0: What is the biggest lesson you learned in that process?
1: The biggest, well- I'll give you a few takeaways from this uh, long story. Number one, never believe what a venture capitalist says until they do it. (laughs) So I had these venture capitalists who promised me money and then they would never deliver. Um, Never uh, stick with a venture capitalist. Never uh, follow them. You have to set the terms. Like If they aren't ready to give you the money, you just walk away like this Mm -hmm. is a hard lesson. Like a lot of entrepreneurs, they hold out hope. If I just keep that relationship open, they'll change their mind. I will tell you if, if you, if an investor doesn't give you the money within the first month, they're probably never going to invest. I mean, Mm -hmm. the chances are the chances are the the amount you're going to gain from the amount of time you spend, you would be better off talking to somebody new. Like you will have your investment in time. And the chance of a payoff is much higher with going with somebody new, then going back to somebody who had who who had the chance to invest and did not do it. And you need to make sure that they as 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 somebody raising capital, you need to set the deadline. You need to say, like, I've met with you three times, like, either you're gonna invest now or we're gonna go our separate ways. You need to say that. Like a lot of times people will not invest unless they're afraid of losing the deal. So if you're just hanging extreme. out there like with them, like always available, they're going to wait. It's, you know, they feel like uh, most investors, when they look at a deal, and I could tell you being an investor now, Mm -hmm. I know what it's like. It's very easy if the deal is bad to say no, right? Oh, I don't want it. Right. It's very easy if the deal is like hot, like it's like everybody's going after this deal and you just want to get in on it. Like, Mm -hmm. so that you don't get left out. Right. Most deals are in the middle. They're in a gray area. Like they're good. They have some problems. You don't quite know. Will this be a big thing? Will it not work? That's where almost all these deals are. So when you're dealing with investors like that, you need to push them. And one of my great mentors told me this. Push them for a no. Get them Mm. to say no. Like Everybody wants them to say yes. Well, you can't get somebody to say yes. You can't make them. You can only show them everything you have, answer all their questions, give them all the information. And then as soon as you do that, you have to say, are you going to invest or not? And be ready to take the no. Like, and if they say no, if they say, I don't know, then you say, well, then you're not investing. I'll, I'll go raise from other people. Like, If they don't know, it's a no. <laughs> that is one of the biggest lessons I learned.
0: Have you ever taken those no's t- no- personal?
1: Yeah. In the early days, I was very thin skinned. Like I would be like everything was personal, but you do this enough. Like, like I said, with everything, like whether it's getting on stage and talking and doing all that, you do this enough and you, you, you start to realize it's not about you it mm-hmm. is not about you. I mean, it's always somewhat about you because you're always selling yourself in the process. So you, you right. kind of lie to yourself if you say it's not entirely about you, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> because people judge you if you're the CEO, they're looking mm-hmm. at you, but you have to say, um, you have to say, I won't let it be about me. Like it, it you know, this, it, if they're going to make a decision. If if it's not a right fit, it's not a right fit. I'm moving on. I'm not gonna dwell on it. I'm not gonna, mm-hmm. you know, beat myself up. I'm not gonna doubt myself. I'm I'm mm-hmm. just gonna move to the next person, the next thing, because that's a much healthier way to deal with rejection.
0: Mm-hmm. Beautiful. I'm curious, you know, Captain Hoff, you wear so many hats. I wonder what is one biggest superpower of yours?
1: Ah, biggest superpower. Well. One of them is my sheer passion for whatever I do, whoever mm-hmm. I engage with, as you can probably tell, like you, and we're both passionate people. That's why we hit it off. Yep. Um, and number two, I can take very complex ideas and simplify them and explain them in a very clear, simple way, fun way, which like mm. my book, Surviving a Startup. Like if you like how I talk now, you'll like the book because literally it's packed with these practical things in very clear Language in a and very fun way. So those are my kind of two superpowers.
0: And you know, Captain Hoff, you have you said earlier, you have such a rich life. You made so many different choices, different paths. I'm curious, looking back, would you change anything?
1: There are things uh, I would change. I made mistakes, like we all make mistakes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, in one of my early startups, when we were just starting out, uh, literally the guys from YouTube uh, wanted to. Bring our company into theirs. We were doing mobile, uh, social network, and they were doing you know, and video, and they were doing video, and it was the very early days. Gosh, well, we should have said yes. <laughs> like, if I would have, like that would have been a great, quick exit, like happened overnight. But uh, you know, financially, that would have been an amazing decision. We said no. Like we said, we're doing our own thing. We, do, you know, you do your thing. We'll do ours. You know, so it didn't work out. But. Um, so there are a million little things like that. Um, one of my companies I could have sold for, you know, a huge amount of money, but I I passed the venture capital said, no, don't do it. Don't do it. And we passed it up. It would have been a good exit. So there are all these different um, opportunities you have. You just can't dwell on those.
0: I love that. I love that you have such, you a- know, I
1: could have, I could have bought Bitcoin at $3. Okay. <laughs> we all regret something. <laughs>
0: I love that, certainly. And I think it's so um so difficult to looking back to looking at all the points, all the dots, see all them connecting, but in the same time thinking, oh Dan, I wish I could done something differently. And I'm curious, um Captain Half. today you've done so much in you, you know, every single point of your life journey. Today, what drives you? So today what do you care about?
1: Uh- well, a lot of things drive me. So I want to work on projects I'm passionate about, which has always been my core drive. I want to work on creative projects. I like those. I love helping out entrepreneurs. It's like the, emo- the connecting with them as people, but also their businesses are like puzzles. So uh, solving their problems, like figuring out what what is the thing that they could do that will really make the biggest difference in their business. And a lot of times they're so close to it like I was in my businesses, that it's hard to see. Like you just don't see that path clearly. But mm. somebody from the outside, uh, you, can, you can see what they're doing wrong and you can really help them. So those are kind of the three things that drive
0: me. Mm, I love that. What is number one mistake that you see entrepreneur made?
1: Ah, entrepreneurs make so many mistakes. But one of the biggest ones is sticking with the same thing too long. Like we all, none of us want to fail. None of us want to give up. None of us Mm -hmm. want to say, oh, we, we invested a year and a hundred thousand dollars and this thing isn't working. You know, that's really hard to do. Um, Mm -hmm. So, but by sticking with something that has already proven that it is not working, you are just wasting more time and more money. Great entrepreneurs try a lot of things, a lot of different things really quickly and they mm-hmm. only stick with it if it's going. Like interesting. You can abandon something too early if you take this approach, but the risk of abandoning something too early versus the risk of sticking with it too long is is less actually. Like so what you need to do is you just when you stop something, you just need basically at the earliest possible point get to that person who's going to be the the customer for whatever you're doing and really look into their eyes and see if you have something. And if their eyes aren't on fire, like I told you, like going crazy, move mm-hmm. on. Like no matter what you invested in there, move on.
0: Wow, that's a beautiful insight. And the reason I say that is there's such a... Challenging balance between being per civilian, right? You know, really stick it out versus, hey, when it's time to really pack and leave and have all the sum cost. And I love what you said about using a benchmark is seeing your customer, whether he actually had a twinkle in the eyes, you can tell whether truly this is something that had a fire, had the potential.
1: Yes, if that customer is they're just like at it, then you have something. And even if it's going to be a long road ahead, stick with it. Mm. If they're not like that, you know, chances are you'll never make them like that. <laughs> you can't change people, you know, what they want, what's in what's, what they need. You, you have to f- discover that.
0: Mm, I love that. And I'm curious today, uh, Steve, you know, you have done so many different types of things. I'm curious today, what's your definition of success? And with that, do you think you are successful?
1: I think being successful is very simple and you can do it from day one, you could be successful right now, all of you. And that is being proud and uh, of all the decisions you make, the little decisions to the big decisions. Like if you say, you know, that's the right decision to make, not right, just for money, not right, just for getting myself ahead, but really the right thing to do for society, for people. I know in my heart, it's right. You're successful.
0: So are you saying that even looking back, you said, oh, I could have sold this deal to X, Y, Z, like even those quote unquote could be a right choice. By the time it's aligned with you, you're still proud of making that decision? Is that what you said?
1: I say we're all going to make mistakes, right? Mm -hmm. So we're all going to make uh, errors. Those don't matter. But when you are faced with how you treat other people, whether you Mm -hmm. are going to be sneaky and you know, steal from people or lie or whether you can with integrity uh, make decisions that you can look at yourself in the mirror and say, you know, these, I can't control all these things in the world, whether my product's successful, whether, you know, I get, you know, I become you know, famous, whether I, this or that happens, whether I become rich, you can't control those, but you can control the decisions you make. And if you can be proud of those every mm-hmm. step along the way, you are being successful.
0: I love that. So, do you think you are successful today?
1: I do, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy with the choices I made.
0: That's beautiful. And I'm curious, you know, looking back, Captain Huff, what would you tell your younger version of self, like 30 years old? So, what would you wish he knows in an earlier time?
1: The younger version of myself, I would tell, uh, don't worry so much. Like, don't, uh, and don't, uh, don't. Uh, don't think that any decision you're making now matters as much as you think it does. So we all put ourselves under a lot of pressure. Like, we have to make this decision. Oh my God, it's going to be the end of the world if we don't make the right decision. <laughs> and I'll tell you, you'll look back a year. Yes, <laughs> and we all do that when. And a year later, you will look back. If you look back at your life, like look at your life last year, all those things you stressed about, you won't, don't even remember 90% of them. And even of the ten percent that you can sort of recall, they mm-hmm. don't really matter to you. Like all those worries you had and all that stress, you—they don't mm. matter. None of it matters. So if it doesn't matter a year later, well, what about ten years later? It's going to matter even less. <laughs> like you're going to mm. be—and and in your lifetime, all those little things don't matter. What matters are the big things. So when you're under that stress, say, "Well, I won't even care about this a year from now." Probably I won't mm-hmm. even remember it three months from now, what's going on today. Why am I worried
0: about it now? <laughs> I love that. So with that, Captain Huff, what matters to you today and what you are creating in the future?
1: So uh, today I am running Founderspace. And so running this incubator, it's been a wonderful experience. I'm also working on my own personal creative projects. You know, my writing. I launched two books this year, you know, Surviving a Startup and uh, the five forces and i want to continue doing that in the future so i'll be coming out with another book i haven't started yet so don't ask me about it and and i'll also be growing founder space and looking to work with a lot of amazing people
0: wow so beautiful if you can imagine one day when we all go to heaven on your capstone what do you want people to say about you what's uh, the one line you want people to say and remember you by
1: so I want uh, uh, people to remember me uh, by, say, I want them to say, Captain Hoff was a passionate guy. That's what I want.
0: <laughs> <laughs> hey, he indeed is. I can personally back on that. Um, this is just so lovely, uh, Captain Hoff. I love that you share such a heartfelt journey. And just I felt like the whole conversation is, I am in a movie with you in every oh. chapter of your life, which is just so... Vivid, so thrilling, so. Well, I have
1: a philosophy. We yes, can live. Yes, We can all live boring lives, or we can write the story of our life to make it exciting. So I you love that. are writing every day. You're writing the story of your own life. Why do you want a boring life? Like the stories you love are where the hero goes through challenges, adventures. Mm-hmm. They're they're mm-hmm. near death. They're struggling. Everything's going wrong, but somehow they come out of it. You know that's so. When I, my life gets routine, I shake it up and because mm. I want a more exciting story. And I encourage everybody to do that.
0: I really love that. You know, the way how I say, use my word is rather than stand in the sideline, watching the movie pass by, why not being the actress, being the actor of your own movie, create the entire story, the entire narrative, the way how you want it to be? So yes. I love your analogy, which is so beautiful. So last but not the least, Captain Huff, you know, anything else you want to share with our entrepreneurs, our leaders who are just so memorized by you and your charisma?
1: Well, thank you, Wen. You're so kind. If the entrepreneurs want to reach me, I am super easy to find. Um, All they have to do is go to founderspace.com, Founderspace. And on Founderspace, I have tons of stuff. So there's, there's podcasts, there's videos, there's all this online startup kit, online startup program, all this stuff. So And you can contact me right there on Founderspace. Also, I am on LinkedIn. So you can find me on LinkedIn and contact me there. And I love to engage with entrepreneurs
0: all right everybody this is captain hoff you can find him at all those places he just mentioned and once again steve and captain hoff i am so honored so grateful to have you today with us your beautiful insight and most importantly your passionate heart is so affectionate so thank you so much for you being you i truly feel like you are making this world a better place every single day and that's why honor is truly all mine. And thank you everybody for watching today. I so appreciate you being here. I also hope that you enjoy the show as much as I do, and I'll see you next time. Bye guys!